Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men in central Indiana pursuing meaningful friendships, faith, and character. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit us at heartofaman.org. Today's talk is from our founder, Bill Moore, taking us through Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31, looking at the boldness of Peter and John to preach the gospel in the face of opposition. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you're inspired by the ideas. So the guy I'm going to talk about tonight is a guy named Desmond Dawes. Some of you are going to notice, know who this is right away. He was a Christian. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. He was enlisted in April of 1942 in the Army after uh, an attack on Pearl Harbor. He felt compelled as a conscientious objector to enlist in the Army. He did not want to kill people. He believed in the commandment that said, thou shalt not kill, and he did not want to kill anyone. He just wanted to be a medic in the Army. They put him in a rifle company, infantry company. Um, and he believed, though, that God said that was wrong to kill, so he did not want to carry a gun. And if you watch the movie Hacksaw Ridge, you will see this young man right here absolutely getting pummeled. Go back to the other slide, because it was the young guy. That guy, when he first started, absolutely got hammered, beat up, abused. His, his officers just tore him to pieces, right? They tried to kick him out so many times. They tried to court-martial him. They tried to do everything they could because he looked at his commanders and said, I will not carry a gun, and I will not practice, and I will not kill anybody. That's not going to happen. I have a right to be a conscientious objector and be involved in this, in this army, which he had a legal right to do. And he fought them to, t to live out that right, and his people hated him until battle time. And when you see the movie, it's really powerful because he was vindicated in, a, in a, an assignment May of 1945. They had to take the Maida Escarpment on the island of Okinawa. It's packed with Japanese, heavily defended. They have to climb this rocky face, get up there and take on these Japanese. And it's a bloody battle and they make a huge push up there. They make the first move, they push them back. And then all of a sudden, Japanese counterattack. And they are trying to get back down this hill. Only a third of the guys get back down. The other two thirds are just beat down. Lots of casualties, lots of lots of life. Desmond did not go back down that hill. Desmond stayed on that hill for hour after hour after hour until he saved 75 soldiers from dying on that battlefield. And the only reason he left that battlefield, he was hit by a grenade and then by a sniper's bullet and brought down off the hill by his own people because he couldn't walk anymore. He, Corporal Dawes was decorated by the U.S. government with numerous medals and citations. This guy was covered in them. Now you could show that. See, you could, if you could see his uniform, it's covered in this stuff, you guys. 16 million men fought in World War II. Only 431 received the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was one of them. He was the only soldier that did not carry a gun in that war. President Truman presented this medal to Corporal Dawes on October 12, 1945. He was son of a carpenter in Virginia, Lynchburg. He loved Jesus Christ and he loved his country, you guys. That's what he did. And the true story about him was turned into this movie about Hacksaw Ridge and the beauty of the movie is they didn't kill the story of Jesus Christ, right? They let it live. It was so good. Mel Gibson did a good job. He was given that medal of honor for his courage. But when they interviewed uh, uh, Corporal Dawes, he said, all my courage came from my, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to save souls. I'm here to save men's lives. I'm here because Jesus Christ gave me the courage and the power to do it. That's why I do what I do, right? And they pin that medal on him. And I tell you what, man, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Tonight, we see Peter and John saying the same daggone thing, aren't we? I'm here with courage, and I'm here bold, 
and I'm here courageous because my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ saved me and I saw him and he's resurrected and he's alive and I will say nothing other than that and I will teach that and I will tell that until I'm dead, right? And they had courage to stand in front of the very men that killed Jesus and spoke the truth to him. That is powerful stuff. And the same spirit, the same Jesus moved that man, moved those men. Same guy, he's same person in this room tonight moving each of us, you guys. Holy Spirit's alive and well, same Jesus, right? He's alive, right? And that's what we celebrate tonight. Tonight, we're gonna study the book of Acts, chapter four. We're gonna look at it through four divisions, one through seven. We're gonna look at the response to this miracle. Verses eight through 12, Peter's defense. 13 through 22, Peter and John's defiance. And 23 through 31, the disciples' prayer. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you. Lord, we want to hear your words tonight, not mine. And Lord, we want to hear what you have to say, so teach us, Lord. Guide us. Help us hear your voice loud and clear in our hearts, Lord. Help us be bold and courageous. Lord, I pray that when we get done tonight, us as men will be courageous. We'll be courageous and we'll speak the name of Jesus wherever you put us, because we know somewhere you're going to put us where we need to do that, Lord. So give us that boldness and courage now, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. In verses one through seven, we see two very different responses to a miraculous healing of that beggar last week. We see first the Sadducees arrested Peter and John because they taught the resurrection. That's what they said they arrested them for. The Sanhedrin carried the power in that culture, you guys. They controlled the culture. It was a group of people, the Sanhedrin, Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes. It was a group of people that controlled that culture. It was their job to make sure there was no heresy being taught. They had to watch the theology that was being put forth in front of the people. And these guys are in the temple teaching. So that was their job to make sure what these boys were doing right. So they arrested them, put them in jail. And they didn't fight them, did they? They just went right on to jail, did what they were told. Went to jail, took their licking, got up the next morning. And these guys put them before them and started questioning them. These are the same Jewish leaders about eight weeks earlier that looked at Jesus and said, crucify him, have him flogged, crucify him to death, kill him, and we'll take a criminal and release him instead of Jesus. Same guys, same exact people, same group, same room, doing the exact same thing, looking at these same guys, and they're going, wow, we got nothing to hold these guys on. We have not, they have not committed a crime. They can't figure it out. As Christians, you guys, we're going to be attacked for speaking boldly for Jesus. You can count on it. You can count on it. And often the group that's doing that is the group that's controlling the culture. Who controls the culture in the United States right now? Social media, TV, music, schools, and the courts. Those are the ones that control the culture in America right now. And you speak out, they're going to oppose you. You can count on it. It happens all the time, all the time. This story tonight reminds me that God creates situations for us to engage these elite people, and they are elite. It is the elite culture, you guys. They do dominate, they do control, they tell you what to think, they tell you how to read, they, they try to gain control over your children, they wanna get control of the books that your kids read. There is a cultural elite that is trying to control everything that's going on, and they want to oppose God at every turn. And if you don't think that's real, you're just living in a bubble, man. So, because it is real, and it is as real as it gets. Everything you touch that's out there in the public right now is in opposition to God. And the, and the culture we live in is opposed to Jesus Christ. And you speak his name, you will feel it. Trust me, you will. You're gonna feel it, right? So, the question is, what do we do with that? We've gotta be prepared to handle that. God puts us in these situations because he wants us to look like Peter and John. He wants us to step in those without hatred and anger. 
He wants us to show up looking like Corporal Dawes. I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be collected. I'm going to be focused. I'm not going to let you rattle me by attacking me and yelling at me and cussing at me and telling me I got to change. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay calm and I'm going to stay cool. Here's what he says in 1 Peter, uh, and this is Peter writing, so that's why I chose it, right? I love what Peter says here because Peter was going through it. 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17, he says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Listen to this. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. This is what Peter's talking about, you guys. Isn't this a beautiful statement from a man that walked in that? He wrote that and said, this is how you handle these situations. He challenges us. He says, love those men because they need to be saved too. The fact that you love them is an indication that you're saved because you have a heart for those people. That's what he's telling us. We've got to move away from the screaming, the attacking, the cussing, the critical language, the verbal assaults, the abuse, the shooting of people. We have to move away from that, right? Going to an abortion clinic and shooting the doctor is not what we're called to do, you guys. That's wrong. It's not the kind of behavior we're being called to. We need to show the love, but we also need to be clear that it's coming from him, that our leader is Jesus Christ. So I'd ask you this. How can you prepare to respectfully yet courageously share Jesus in a hostile American culture? How can you be prepared to respectfully yet courageously share Jesus in a hostile American culture? In verse four, we see the opposite reaction to the healing of the lame beggar. Many Jewish people believed the message. 2,000 were saved that day. 2,000 were saved that day. You see the size of this church? That's this whole church filled up at service one day. Entire church filled. That's how many were saved that day. That is a big job. Wow, well done, Peter. The result of Peter healing and sharing the story of Jesus was 2,000 new converts in one day. That's impressive work by the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. And here's the key thought, I think. God gives us an incredible honor he gives us incredible honor to us to help him save those lost people. It's an honor to do that, you guys. It's an honor. What's an honor to get a job assignment? I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple examples. When my son decided to get married, Kyle, he came to me and said, Dad, it would be an honor for you to do my wedding. <laughs> and it was an honor to do my son's wedding, you guys. And he let me do that. And it changed me. It was for the better. Last week, uh, my son Taylor came to me and said, Dad, remember when you were older, <laughs> a little younger, and I was a little boy? We used to always watch you play basketball, and uh, we're going to have some guys get together and play some basketball. Would you want to come with us? Because I know you love basketball. And I thought, wow, I'm old. He knows I can't jump, you know, but he knows how much I love the game. And, you know, he knows I'm probably going to make a mess of it and slow the game down. It's probably not going to make the fun, the game is fun, but he wanted to be with me, you know, and that's what it felt like, was like, it was a really an honor to have my son Taylor say, Dad, come play hoops with us. That's what it means to be honored by somebody when they ask you to do something. When God says, I'm asking you to go reach the lost, that's what he's asking you to do. He's saying, it would be an honor for you to join me 
it would be an honor to have you there. So I would ask you, can you reframe in your mind those times when people, God puts those lost people in front of you, can you reframe that moment instead of saying, oh gosh, what am I supposed to do? This is brutal, I don't wanna do this, I don't know how to do this. Can you just go, wow, God, what an honor it is that you would ask me to do this, I'm so honored. And I will gladly do this for you. I would love to do this for you. Will you look at it that way? How will you think about this work when the Lord brings an unsaved man into your life this week? How will you look at this work? In verses 8 through 12, we see Peter's defense before the Sanhedrin. And the scripture says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know Peter cannot speak like, like this the way he did without the Holy Spirit. None of us can. Your pastor can't. You can't. None of us can. Only the Holy Spirit can speak like that. Peter describes the illegal arrest. He said, we were arrested for an act of kindness. We were kind to this man. But then he said, let me be clear. Jesus healed the man. The very same Jesus you killed, you people killed. That's who healed the man, not me. And the Messiah, Jesus, the one that King David talked about in Psalm 18, that's who he is. God raised that Jesus from the dead. He presented the gospel to him so clearly, you guys. Peter, an uneducated man, untrained, a fisherman. The Holy Spirit filled him and he taught the gospel to these Sanhedrin people crystal clear. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The climactic sentence, he lays it right out in front of them. There's only one way to heaven, you guys, and that is through Jesus Christ. They were trying to adhere to the law. They thought the law was all they needed. And he said, the law will do you no good. The law only makes it clear that you're guilty. You need a savior. The problem with the Jewish culture still today is they believe that they're born inherently good. They don't believe that they have sin in them. They don't. If you ask a Jew, are you born with sin? They say, no, I'm born good. Man is naturally good. Christians believe we're born with, inherently with a sinful nature. And the only way we can get to heaven is because we need a savior. And they look at it and say, no, you don't need a savior. And I don't need a savior at all, right? Because you're not naturally uh, bad. That's a problem. And that's why they don't look at this the way we do. Peter clarifies the purpose of the Messiah and the law to him by quoting the scripture to him. He clarifies it. Isn't this the coolest thing? Peter interprets scripture so that we can now understand that scripture. That's a powerful thing because Jesus taught him. John 14, 16 said, no one comes to the Father but through me. The guy, guys, people look at us and say, how can you say that? That's arrogant. There's, no, there, there's all roads lead to heaven. How many times have you heard that, especially in the young college crowds? They study all these world religions and they go, oh, they all look a lot alike and they all lead to the same place. It's so not true. It's not even remotely close to true. If you study world religions, you can see they fit in three very distinct categories and atheism is the fourth, but these three categories are very different. Philosophically, theologically, sociologically, any way you look at them, they're radically different. They all don't lead to heaven, there's no way. The fact of the matter is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in who he is, then you have to believe what he says is true. And if you believe what he says is true, then what he says is there's only one way to heaven. Then you have to believe that that's true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is inherently narrow. It's inherently exclusive. It is inherently going to bring people to a place that says there's one truth. 
It's distinct, right? It's exclusive by nature, truth is. And Jesus said that. What we should be grateful for is that there's actually a way to heaven. Instead of saying there's all roads to heaven, no. God had no reason to let us into heaven. We're all sinners. There's no reason we should be in his presence. We're evil in his sight. We should be grateful there's one way to heaven, that he made a way to heaven. And in fact, that way is so good that it's open to all men. He said, I came so that all can be saved, that all the lost can be saved, right? That's why he came. God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his one and only son. That path is open to every man. There's one path, not many roads, but that road is open to everyone. We should be grateful for that one road. That's what we need to know, you guys. If you don't understand that truth, you will be tripped up on this question. As a Christian follower, this truth is important to you because you need to look at somebody and say, I, I, I love what you're saying, but it's not true. It's not true. No roads don't lead to heaven. Do you believe in truth? The argument's really about truth. That person doesn't believe in absolute truth, so you need to spend time with them understanding why they don't believe in absolute truth. Right? Because that's the problem. So you've got to help people with that. You have to have your own story figured out. You have to think about the theology and understand it. You have to study the scriptures and understand it and know how it applies to your life so that when people bring wrong reasoning and bad logic to you, you can help them unravel that in a kind and loving manner. The problem is with our particular belief, it tends to make us arrogant. Guys, as we study the scripture more, we get more arrogant. As we know more, we get more arrogant. And the arrogance turns people off because you have all the answers, you wanna dump them onto people's laps. And it's the wrong approach. The only way to approach people that don't know the Lord and that have questions about things is by asking more questions. You have to explore with them what's going on in their mind. That way that you teach is Socratic. You teach by asking questions, you explore with them. You don't tell them, you don't tell them. When you tell them, they'll never listen to you. Their brain does not have a place to put what you had. When you ask a good question, it opens up brain, brain can take in ideas. When you tell, brain shuts down. That's, everybody knows that, but we don't do that. So you have to know the truth, and then you have to ask questions to help people receive the truth. This is important for us good Christian guys. Who do you love enough to earnestly share the beauty of God providing a way for us to be in fellowship with them. Who do you love enough that you'll sit with them and have those questions with them? Who do you have the patience to love to ask those questions and let them explore these truths with you without getting frustrated and angry and impatient? Who is that in your life that you could do that with this week? That's what God's calling you to. In verse 13, I can't not read verse 13, golly jeez. Verse 13, probably my favorite. Oh, I love this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I had said to someone, I'd love to see that on my tombstone, man. That's a pretty awesome statement. They saw the courage of Peter and John. It took incredible courage to stand there in front of the men that killed Jesus. That took courage, you guys. I mean, big time. And then to accuse those guys of killing Jesus. I mean, these guys are, whew, they're strapping it on. These, those were the uh, religious elite of that day, and they were astonished by these men. They're looking at these guys, and they're going, uneducated, ordinary. And they're explaining Psalm 18, 118 to us. They healed a lame guy who'd been lame for 40 years. What is up with these guys? And they're like, they have clearly been with Jesus. They took note that they had been with Jesus. They recognized Peter and John by what they said, 
and what they did. God uses ordinary men, ordinary men like us, and gives them courage to speak the name of Jesus Christ. Why would Jesus choose ordinary men? Because in ordinary men, you can see the extraordinary man of Jesus Christ. And highly accomplished, highly competent, highly capable men, it's very hard to see Jesus because their gifts and their power and their ability overshadows his. God chooses ordinary guys like me and like you guys because you can see it when he's working in us because the people that know us go, yeah, that guy's a bit of a loser usually, so that's powerful stuff. Wow. You know, a lot of times people have come to me and said, how does a guy like you who has, has a good business and you've made money and you live in a nice house and you've been successful, how do people see Jesus in your life? And I tell them this, the best way for me to tell you is when I can say I'm sorry and you can see the dumb stuff I do. So I spend more time telling people my mistakes than my successes and not to try to be false, falsely humble, but because it's truly what I see in myself a lot of times is the dumb things I do. And I am incredibly grateful when God works through me. And it feels really good. And I say I'm sorry a lot, you guys, a lot, because I make a lot of dumb mistakes. And so I would say if you're a really highly accomplished guy and you have a hard time sharing Jesus, well, maybe what you ought to do maybe is put away all your trophies and stop talking about all your success and start letting guys know where you failed so they can relate to you a little bit better and maybe say you're sorry a little bit more and maybe somebody can get behind you just a little easier and maybe Jesus will be more apparent to them. How will you come across when you meet a man this week? How are you gonna come across? What's gonna be your vibe to the guy you meet this week that you don't know? Think about it. I'm gonna meet a new guy sometime this week. What's gonna be my vibe? How am, I going to, how am I going to portray myself? How am I going to carry myself? What am I going to put out there? And change it up this week is what I would say to you. Change it up. Soften. More questions. Go a little lighter on your accomplishments. A little more on where you've made mistakes. And let that guy see a little more of your vulnerability and a little less of your success. And see how that might open and change the conversation. How will you approach a guy you don't know this week? Verses 14 through 22, we see Peter and John's defiance. Sanhedrin knew the arrest was unlawful and they had no power to convict him. Everyone in the city saw the miracle. The place was going crazy. They were unbelievably amazed at what happened. They arrested him for preaching the resurrection, but they did not present that argument when they argued against him. Did you notice that? It said at the beginning they arrested him because they were preaching the resurrection, but when it came time to convict, they said, we got nothing. If Jesus hadn't been resurrected, wouldn't they have argued that he hadn't been resurrected at that time? Wouldn't Luke have captured that in the book of Acts that they argued he had not been resurrected? And why didn't they argue that? Well, that's because he had been, and they had no proof that he hadn't. That's powerful, you guys. F.F. Bruce teaches that in his commentary, that the fact that they don't argue that he was not resurrected at that point proves, in fact, that Jesus was resurrected. It's powerful proof. They commanded Peter and John to stop speaking the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied by saying, we must obey God by speaking what we see, what we've seen and what we heard. They could not help but speak. Why? Because they are heavily under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. These guys were heavily intoxicated on the Holy Spirit. And they're like, man, we can't not talk. 
It's coming out of us. I don't know what you want us to do, but it's going to come out. Guys, we must obey God even when we are told we cannot share Jesus. We must obey God. We saw in Daniel chapter 6, the king then, Darius, gave a decree and said, you have to only pray in my name. I'm God. You can't pray to any other God except me. And Daniel said, I cannot do that. Daniel was compliant his whole life to the king until this moment. He said, I cannot do that, king. And he went right to his room, right near the window where he prayed every day. And he got on his knee and he prayed. He was arrested. He was thrown in a lion's den. He was rescued by Jesus Christ. He never got killed. God saved him. But he disobeyed the government. In 2014, the Green family took on the Supreme Court of the United States, Hobby Lobby, took on the Supreme Court of the United States, and they won in a a ruling uh, five to four. And the ruling said the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was violated when the the Affordable Care Act forced employers, closely held companies, private companies, to provide uh, medicine or abortion for people that want that, that work for them. That was a violation of closely held companies who had religious beliefs. So if you were an owner of a company and you held religious beliefs and you did not want to provide pills or abortions to your employees, the Affordable Care Act forced you to do that and it fined you daily. For Hobby Lobby, it was going to be millions of dollars a day if they didn't comply with this law. And thank God the Green family knew that was the time, that was the time when they had to fight against the government. That was the time when they said, we will not comply. There are times when you have to, you have to press back. There are times when you have to say, no, I'm not going to do this. The government is wrong. My church is wrong. The pastor's wrong. You have to know. How are you going to know? I'll tell you how you're going to know. You have to be ready. You have to read the scriptures. You have to study the scriptures. You have to understand the scriptures. You have to be educated. You have to use your mind. You have to think. What did we see the apostles doing in the early church? They were dedicated to the teachings of the apostles. The early disciples dedicated to the teachings of the apostles. Why? So they would know what to do and when to do it. It's the only way you'll be prepared is if your mind is prepared. You have to study. You have to listen. You have to read. Because there will be a time when you are going to have to oppose what you're seeing. And it can't be based on your feelings. It has to be based on a good, studious mind that knows this is right. I praise God for the Green family because my company was affected by that ruling. I had to provide abortion and pills to kill babies at my company based on the Affordable Care Act, and I would not comply. I was not going to comply either. I did not have the money to take on the Supreme Court. Thank God the Green family did. I really do. I thank Dave Green all the time. I think that, thank the Lord that man was prepared for such a time as this. He knew when he was supposed to be. He had studied the scriptures. He built a Bible library in uh, New York. Fantastic. This man was a, he's a man of God, you guys. But you got to know, where do you feel the tension of wanting to speak about feeling muzzled? Where are you being muzzled right now? Where are you feeling that tension? Somebody's muzzling you. Somebody's telling you, you can't speak out. You got to be quiet. Where are you feeling that tension in your life right now? Think about it. Where is that coming from? And you need to ask yourself, is it time for me to speak against that? Or is it time to me submit to that authority? You got to know the difference. You have to know the difference. We see Peter, he knows when not to talk and he knows when to talk. We see both in him. And finally, we see the disciples pray in verses 23 through 31. They go through this beautiful prayer, you guys, and they do these beautiful steps in there. They come back. It's the first thing they do. They have this massive celebration. They're super excited about what happened. They're overjoyed and they start to pray. And they have this beautiful prayer and the prayer, the culmination of the prayer is them asking God for more boldness and courage. 
not to get them out of the situation, not to protect them for more tax, not to keep them out of jail, not for more food, not for better camels, not for better tents, right? They didn't ask for better clothes. There was none of that. Like, that's not what they prayed. They prayed for one thing, that they would be filled with the Spirit of God, to be bold to live out the testimony that God had them to live. That's what they asked for. That's what they wanted. And this is what God's asking of us, you guys. He's like, come to me with those prayers. But those prayers that align with my will are the prayers that really have power. Isn't that what you see here? It shook the building. The spirit filled these people. Why? Because these prayers were so aligned with the will of God, so aligned with what he wanted them to do. It was right on target. And this is what he's asking of them. I've had this experience, you guys. I worked for eight years in Africa, hard, put a lot of hours in, many, many trips, lots of money, lots of money. And I know God called me there, but none of that work panned out, none of it. I know there's fruit there and I know God will let me see it someday, but it didn't go the way I thought it would, not at all, not at all. But on the other hand, I've been working in men's ministry for 31 years. And every time I move with boldness and courage and with an act of faith and with a passion to follow God, he opens doors and he blesses the work and he leads me and he talks to me, he guides me and he answers and he moves and he shakes my house and he fills me with the spirit. All of that happens because I'm doing the work that he's called me to. In Ephesians 2, he says, I have prepared works for you in advance, good works for you, each of you in advance. God's got something that we're all supposed to be doing, each of us, uniquely us, that's prepared just for you. And when you get online with that and you step into that space and you start praying, God, empower me, embolden me, give me courage, help me go forward, help me be strong, let me go there with passion. God says, that prayer I will answer. I will shake that roof underneath you. When you go there and say, oh God, please make me noticed. Help me be recognized. Help me be popular. Help me make a lot of money. Help me have nice clothes. Make sure I look good. Make sure I get a lot of books written. And fill my church with people so people will clap for me. God's like, no, mm -mm. that I don't get behind. And you see a lot of that happening. You see, why does God bless that? That's not God blessing that. It has nothing to do with God. You can get people excited about anything. And Timothy says they're going to tickle their ears and make them hear what they want to hear. You can tickle people's ears and fill all kinds of stadiums with people. I can tell you this, when my prayers are about doing what God gave me to do, which is to serve you guys, those prayers get answered, they get answered in a big way because I'm doing what God's called me to do. How will your prayers this week reflect a courageous desire to serve with the Lord in the place he has created for you to work? How will your prayers this week reflect a courageous desire to serve with the Lord in the place he created for you to work? This story of Peter and John gives us a clear picture of what men filled with the Holy Spirit look like, you guys. It's clear. It's powerful. These are like Marines, man. These are like oh, guys that are taking the hill, right? Where's Captain Mike? Captain Mike, right? Like this is, this is, mm, these guys are getting after it, right? Jay, you were in the army? Guys that are getting after it, right? You got a hill to take. This is these guys. They're courageous to speak. They're prepared when the attack comes. They're clear on the path. There's only one way. They know what it is. It's Jesus Christ. They're honored to do the work that God's called them to do. They're loyal to that God till the end. And they pray diligently to stay empowered and on task. That's what committed men of God look like, filled with the Holy Spirit. May we be that this week. 